If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from DC and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. All right, so we're back with our um, Addiction 101 series, and today I want to welcome Dr. Christopher Blazes, who is, uh, you know, YouTube famous. I don't know if that's really the case, but um, I would say his benzodiazepine use disorder lecture that is available on YouTube and which we will link in the show notes here is one of the best sort of summaries of uh, benzodiazepine addiction, which is a, a huge problem and becoming even huger. But I asked him onto the podcast to discuss this uh, sort of topic and especially the neurobiology of addiction and recovery. And I'd just like to welcome you, Dr. Blazes. Well, thank you for having me, Patrick. It's great to be here and to be a part of such a cool thing that you're doing here on this podcast. Ah, you're welcome. No, thanks for uh, giving up the time. And, you know, full disclosure, the, the, the thing that got me really with that um, presentation <laughs> that's out there from some U of M, I think, sponsored event was you cited Plato and Aristotle and uh, Algis Huxley and a bunch of other things that don't usually get cited in medical lectures. Uh, I wish I weren't in my basement because I would show you in my, my living room where I'm usually set up. I have a, a huge uh, print of the School of Athens over my mantle. <laughs> so I think you'd, you'd appreciate that. Yeah, no, that's I, that's great because I I put Plato, a picture of Plato and Aristotle at the beginning of all of my controversial lectures because uh, you know they're two of the most brilliant thinkers of all times. They were contemporaries. Um, it's hard to argue with uh, any of their assertions, but their opinions were often opposed. So, and when there's controversial issues in medicine and in giving lectures, so I often invite. Uh, the audience and remind also just to remind myself that if I identify more with Plato, that there's somebody, there's an Aristotle out there who's equally as well informed and I could probably learn something from. Ah, intellectual humility that I think they both learned that from Socrates. True. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, Socrates, as you know, was famous for, or um, his reputation was significantly uh, centered on the fact that he knew what he didn't know, um, which is a, a great virtue for a physician as well. Um, but before getting into all of this, uh, I'd like to know who Dr. Christopher Blazes is. Um, so you give me a little bit of your background, um, where you're at in terms of your uh, career, uh, what's important to you, et cetera. Sure. So I'm... Um... I'm a little bit of an oddball. I'm a board-certified emergency medicine doc, but then a little bit later on in my career, I also decided to do a second residency in psychiatry. So I'm also a psychiatrist, and then I did a, a, a fellowship in addiction psychiatry. So uh, right now, I'm on faculty at uh, OHSU um, in both uh, psychiatry, addiction psychiatry, and emergency medicine. So I spent, I spent a good number of years in the community and kind of made my way back to academia, um, which was an interesting transition, but I'm glad that I did. And, and just for your reference, the, the lecture that you're referring to is actually, if you look it up, it's on the UCSF-sponsored website. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yes, and reminder, we will link to that. So, well, that's awesome. Uh, that, <laughs> that's probably another conversation, but 
as somebody who is now doing private practice and really loved academics and thought, you know, way before med school that I'd wind up in the academy, uh, I, I often fantasize about going back to the academic setting. Um, but I get some of the teaching and intellectual kind of stimulation from doing this podcast. But but good on you. I bet that was tough um, to to kind of get back into that world, especially man. That is pretty diverse. Emergency medicine and psychiatry and addiction psychiatry. What was the interval between um, getting done with your emergency uh, training and then going back? I finished my emergency medicine residency in 2001. And then I practiced, I continued practicing emergency medicine up until just recently. I just recently stopped. So I continued to practice throughout my second residency in psychiatry. And then I retrained in psychiatry around 2013. And so it was after the second residency that I, I went back into academia. Okay. All right. Well, what we usually do on the podcast is uh, do a little uh, review of some questions to help uh, students study on the go for their board exams. So let's do a couple of these, thanks to Amboss. Um, and the first one is going to be asking which of the following is the most likely effect of this drug on the synaptic cleft. And the vignette has it that an investigator is studying a local anesthetic that activates both alpha and beta adrenergic receptors. When given intravenously, it causes euphoria and pupillary dil dilation. Which of the following is the most likely effect then of this drug? A, increased release of norepinephrine. B, decreased breakdown of norepinephrine. C, decreased reuptake of norepinephrine or D, increased release of serotonin. If you were to go back for a third time into uh, medical education or a fourth time and become a medical student again, how would you think through a question like this? Are you the type of person who just goes for the answer? Do you look at every um, answer choice before committing? What's your uh, process? So my process, it's interesting that you bring this up because uh, when I used to think things through very completely and thoroughly, <laughs> I never scored that well. So for me, the way that my brain works is I'll read the question, I'll read it through thoughtfully once. And if an answer comes up, then I go for it. If I don't know the answer, I'll read through it a second time and um, and try to go about it more, uh, try to think about each part more, more closely, but I will not spend uh, an, uh, a large amount of time trying to figure it out because I've, I've grown to trust my unconscious mind more than my conscious mind. Yeah. And we're getting more philosophical again, but I think that in the Western world, we're so, and this is like more Aristotelian than Plato, we're so focused on the intellect, but I think that there's powerful parts of our brain that we use less. Yeah. So I tend to move towards the unconscious. I call it the hunch reflex. <laughs> They're that sort of like, oh, I think that's it. Boom. Going to move on, make the answer choice and move forward. So, well, yeah, I mean, it, uh, you know, it's called different things by different people. I think, um, you know, Malcolm Gladwell called it the adaptive unconscious. Mm. Silvano Arietti is a, uh, a, 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 a classic psychiatric analyst who called it tertiary processing. So I think that once the knowledge is in there, there's a part of us that is able to kind of, you know, use it more effectively. All right. So we've got this drug then the investigators looking at, they give it IV and it causes euphoria and pupillary dilation. Um, so they want to uh, want us to know or answer which the, of the uh, which um, of the answer choices uh, describes the effect of the drug at the synaptic cleft. And the correct answer here, just to be clear for the students, is decreased reuptake of norepinephrine. And I guess what I would ask you to do, if you don't mind, um, are you able to kind of uh, break down what happens with this particular drug, which is cocaine in terms of its activity at the synaptic cleft? So, yeah, the, you know, um, cocaine is one of, uh, one of the classic stimulants that we know about um, in addiction medicine and addiction psychiatry. Um, and when people uh, ingest cocaine, it ends up 
you know, decreasing the reuptake of norepinephrine, but also other monoamines in the synaptic cleft. So, and it's differentiated, that differentiates it from, for example, methamphetamine, because not only does methamphetamine decrease the reuptake of norepinephrine, but it also increases the release of norepinephrine from the stores in the cell. So it kind of has a double whammy of activity with methamphetamine versus cocaine. And that's a good board question to remember as well. Uh, say that again, and um, we'll we'll pause. Just re- restate that then. What should they remember between cocaine and methamphetamine as stimulants? Sure. So cocaine, the mechanism of action is that uh, it decreases the reuptake of monoamines, which are norepinephrine, serotonin, um, and dopamine. So all three of those. And methamphetamine is more powerful than cocaine. And think of it that way, because it does that, it decreases the reuptake so that it that the, the monoamines stay in the synaptic cleft longer, but it also uh, facilitates the release of um, the monoamines from the cell stores. So you not only are you slowing down the reuptake of it, but you're increasing the release into the synaptic cleft. So it's much more powerful. And it's also clinically relevant in the sense that a lot of the prescribed stimulants um, fit into those categories as well. Like for example, that was my next question. What about regular old amphetamines? Exactly. So, um, you know, Ritalin, for example, is just like cocaine. Its mechanism of action is that it decreases the reuptake of the monoamines. But Adderall, for example, is like methamphetamine. It does both. And so that's that's kind of a, a very important um, clinically relevant piece of knowledge to know that also probably is is good to know for the boards. How would you differentiate um, methamphetamine then from like the Adderall, which is mixed amphetamine salts, right? Is there a significant mechanistic difference there? Virtually none. Okay. And that's also, I think, clinically relevant because, you know, in my opinion and the opinion of um, a lot of people who are smarter than me, you know, um, like Adderall, for example, is much more abusable than Ritalin because it is much more powerful. So it's also, um, you know, Adderall will turn a drug screen positive for amphetamine, um, whereas Ritalin won't. Got it. Same exact mechanism as methamphetamine. Now, the, the, the first answer choice, which I would say is probably the most attractive distractor, as it were, is uh, increased release of norepinephrine. So I think you covered that um, by stating that the uh, whereas cocaine, um, you know, increases the concentration by blocking the presynaptic uptake reuptake of the monoamines, the methamphetamine amphetamines of this world as stimulants increase the release of the monoamines. So if you ch- wanted to choose A, we've covered that, and you know why it's uh, not. A, instead of C, decreased reuptake of norepinephrine. Um, But what about this? Would methamphetamine, amphetamine, cocaine, Ritalin, are they all going to cause euphoria and pupillary dilation? Yes, to varying degrees. Um, You know, the euphoria aspect is a little bit, um, it's, it's hard to generalize completely because you know, some people become dysphoric on stimulants. So, you know, and this is, we're getting into the the realm of being very specific, but like for the board's purposes, they're going to say it will cause euphoria, but in actual clinical practice for certain people, stimulants can cause dysphoria. Now, I think then the key to this question then is to pay careful attention to the vignettes because what is asked or, or what is stated is that an investigator is studying a local anesthetic that activates both alpha and beta adrenergic receptors. So um, methamphetamine, amphetamine, these are not uh, local anesthetics, but you should know that cocaine is in the class of uh, local anesthetics. Um, is that a fair uh, a fair thing to say? Yeah, that's that makes the most sense. And, and we, we continue to use it a lot in emergency medicine for nosebleeds and such. Oh, really? Okay, makes sense. All right. So... Anything else to note uh, for these answer choices? Decreased breakdown of norepinephrine was choice B. Um, that would be like the MAOI inhibitors, which I don't think those are really abused, right? 
No, never seen it. Um, and then increased release of serotonin. This is probably worth mentioning. Choice D. So LSD M- MDMA. What is the difference between, say, or what can we say about LSD or MDMA versus cocaine or or other stimulants like cocaine? It's kind of hard. I mean, a lot probably, but... <laughs> yeah, I mean, but to, to make a generalization, it's really hard. And this is, you know, these chemicals and how they affect the brain, it's actually much more complicated than we describe, you know, because it affects multiple different areas um, with multiple, you know, because actually LSD and MDMA, it's not entirely serotonin. There's other receptors involved. But in general, I think that it's more serotonergic than um, than the other like the other stimulants. So there is some stimulant activity, and I would say that MDMA and LSD do result in um, in some other monoamine activity, but it's predominantly more serotonin. Now, can you get hallucinations on all of the stimulants? Because um, LSD, I think. Uh, anybody knows anything about someone like Steve Jobs or, I don't know, tons of music from the 60s, 70s. I just watched a Woodstock uh, documentary. Um, we, We know this causes hallucinatory activity. Is there a described or uh, described mechanism or good heuristic to understand why LSD characteristically causes these visual uh, hallucinations? Um, versus the others, which, you know, or MDMA classically has that um, party sort of uh, club drug. Uh, People want to dance and feel close to each other and all this stuff. Yeah. And and again, I think this is where we're kind of in our adolescence of understanding of these medications and our understand adolescence of our understanding of the brain. It's so complicated. And so there's some certain trends that we've noticed through research and it being kind of you know, um, you know, validated over time through other people, such such as the fact that MDMA and LSD are more associated with um, with serotonin. But the mechanisms are so much more complex than we understand because it's also a really hard thing to study, right? I mean, you know, getting your IRB um, to approve studies like this is really really challenging. So there's so much more we need to know. I wish I could give you a better answer. Yeah, some of that was uh, tongue in cheek. Uh, uh, for the board's purposes, I would say it's it's probably good we're in our adolescence for the medical students because exactly they're not going to ask things that will require a lot of um, distinctions. You know, the uh, you know essentially, I, I would say it seems to me like the sorts of information, the kind of information that's covered is more heuristic almost um, or archetypal. Uh, in terms of what they're asking about drugs or their mechanisms of action, just because they usually illustrate some good yes. uh, concept that's applicable uh, applicable across um, you know all of medical education. But um, let's see. So uh, before we move on, though, I got one question about um, everything that's been mentioned thus far, as far as substances that are abused go. So amphetamines. Um, methamphetamine, cocaine, LSD, MDMA. Is there an inherent property to these drugs that would make one, you know, quote, addictive versus another? Because I don't hear too much about people being addicted to something like LSD uh, versus cocaine. So we have pretty good knowledge of this. What defines a drug of abuse is if it causes dopamine to be released in the nucleus accumbens, which is kind of the center of the reward circuit. And uh, that all drugs of abuse will do that, either directly or indirectly. So even drugs that aren't involved with dopamine through pathways in the brain, through feedback and negative feedback and activation will end up resulting with dopamine release in the nucleus accumbens. So I think you're right. It's, um, you know, LSD is classically thought not to be addictive. And I would agree with that statement. Um, And there is no evidence that it does end up with resultant dopamine release in the nucleus accumbens. I think that gets after what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a a good, um, especially touching too on neurobiology as as was going to be our topic. All right. We'll move on from the stimulants there. And then um, let's do 
another one that I'm sure uh, is is a favorite of um, the boards and um, especially and probably your emergency medicine shelf exam and probably a bunch of other things too. So the next one we've got, uh, which of the following would most likely reverse this patient's condition? So we're looking for essentially an antidote. And the vignette has a 23-year-old woman comes to the ED 30 minutes after being found unresponsive by her boyfriend. The EMS found empty pill bottles next to her, and her boyfriend reports she has a history of insomnia and generalized anxiety disorder, and that she was recently diagnosed with depression. Her vitals show a temperature of 36 Celsius, which is 96.8 Fahrenheit. Uh, pulse of 64, respirations are decreased and shallow, and blood pressure is within normal limits. On examination, she does not open her eyes. She makes incomprehensible sounds and extends her extremities when a painful stimulus is applied. Her pupils are three millimeters and reactive to light. Corneal reflex is normal. Gag reflex is absent. There is diffuse hypotonia and decreased deep tendon reflexes. Otherwise, she has a normal cardiopulmonary examination and is intubated for airway protection and mechanical ventilation and infusion of you know, intravenous fluid fluids is begun. So kind of a lot of information in that um, vignette, but our answer choices here are A, um, to answer which of the following would reverse this patient's condition, A, hemoperfusion, B, flumazenil, C, fomepazole, or D, sodium bicarbonate. So I guess the first thing is to go back to this vignette and, you know, um, ask ourselves, what did she most likely take if we're getting an, you know, what's the antidote question? Um I don't know. Uh, would you walk me through how to think of what's in this vignette if I'm a medical student um, and I'm on the margins uh, watching the ER doc uh, receive this unresponsive patient uh, being told she's got pill bottles next to her on the floor where she was picked up? Um, what's your kind of process? So my process as a medical student who's taking an exam would be different than as an ER doc. I'll do both. <laughs> right. <laughs> As an ER doc, I would jump straight to the pupils. And because with somebody who is a suspected overdose um, and they're minimally responsive with shallow respirations, you have to differentiate whether it's opioids versus other sedative hypnotics and things like that. And the pupils are a key aspect here. And so you also have to know what's normal, you know, what's a normal pupil size. I think that's a very important thing to know for the boards. And three millimeters is a normal pupil size. So if they said one millimeters, then obviously that's less, but sometimes they'll just say pinpoint, but also know that five millimeters is a dilated pupil. So with a normal pupil size, you can pretty much rule out that it's opiates. Okay. And once you've ruled out opiates, then you start to consider other sedative hypnotics. Um, and then what I would do is I would uh, go back up towards the history and you know, look at the question, you know, it says that she has a history of insomnia and generalized anxiety disorder. And so what are the, some of the things that are commonly used to treat anxiety and insomnia? Benzo. Benzodiazepines are number one. Yep. And so the combination of those two things, um, I, would, I would be pretty much keyed into what they're looking for. Um, and I think the last thing is that the, the key to know about benzodiazepine overdoses is that their vital signs are often very normal but they'll be deeply sedated. So I think all of those things fit in here and that's probably enough to answer. And one other thing is I also like the way that they phrased it, which of the following would most likely reverse this patient's condition. And the answer is flumazenil, of course, you know, which is a, a, a GABA antagonist. Um, but in reality, we almost, I have never in my 20 years as an ER doc given flumazenil. It's something I've heard this a few times and it blows my mind because it shows up in, you know, every single kind of board review. It's, it's funny. 
Yep. It totally is funny because they, they expect you to know it. And the reason is, is because you can actually cause seizures, which are refractory to many different medications. So if people are physiologically dependent upon benzodiazepines and you give them flunazenil, they're going to have seizures and you're not going to be able to stop them. If they, it's an isolated overdose, then um, where they had not been physiologically dependent, you probably will not precipitate seizures. And so knowing that in conjunction with the fact that all you have to do is basically support their breathing. So you can put them on BiPAP or intubate them and get them through it. Um, and there's really no other um, significant you know, complications from benzo overdoses that as long as you support their breathing, they'll do fine. So yes, for the boards, no, it's flumazenol. For actual practice, I've never given it. And actually, I don't believe um, any of my colleagues have ever given it either. Yeah, I, I do think you're like the second or, or third <laughs> physician who would potentially use this medication based on your specialty. Um, over the past five years that I've talked to is like, yeah, never use the mazanil. <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, just keep that, keep that in mind that uh, when you're, you're stressed out, but all the things you have to know on the boards, as long as you get through very often, um, you don't have to really worry about some of the more um, esoteric almost things. And, and you can worry about real life and taking care of patients. Yeah. One more thing about Mazinol, just because even though I have never used it, like there's actually some interesting research about um, using it after people have been um, you know, successfully treated for benzodiazepine withdrawal and they're outside of the window of acute withdrawal. The, the theory is if, the, if you attach an antagonist to a receptor, you're going to force the body to go back to its old homeostatic state. Because what happens is with chronic suppression, with chronic activation of a receptor over time, the body down, down regulates. And so that often will lead to this post-acute withdrawal syndrome, which um, is very prevalent with benzodiazepines and alcohol and other sedatives, um, because it takes the body six months, even a year to get back to its normal state um, and to have their receptors normalize. And if you attach an antagonist, then you're kind of doing the opposite and you can force the body to um, work through the pause. Anyway, esoteric knowledge, but it's kind of cool and fun. Yeah, something to think about too. So flumazenil being investigated to be the uh, naloxone, naltrexone of uh, benzodiazepines, essentially. Yep, exactly. Cool. Very cool. All right. So I think this question's pretty clear that it's it's going to be flumazenil just because this shows up so often. But a uh, couple questions um, for those who don't know. Uh, a corneal reflex is normal and a gag reflex is absent. Any comment on that? So um, I think that what they're getting at is that um, benzodiazepines are muscle relaxants. And um, so it's probably more likely that it would diminish the gag reflex. But to be honest, I'm not 100% sure. What, what are your thoughts? No, I, I same. I have no idea why they um, made that distinction. Um, uh, I, I think that's an, an uh, that's probably it. Um, they're probably just giving, making it absolutely clear that this is a benzodiazepine related uh, intoxication. The corneal reflex is oftentimes spared. Like the the ocular muscles are sometimes the last to go when it comes to decreased tone. So maybe that is what they're getting at. But I'm not 100 percent sure. And what about um, extending her extremities when a painful stimulus is applied? So they're, they're almost certainly referring to decerebrate posturing, which is a pretty advanced sign of dysfunction in the brain, right? Yeah. Normally it, it goes to, you know, initially with decorticate and then it progresses to decerebrate oftentimes more when you're getting, you know, to the stages of herniation. So I have not seen decerebrate posturing myself in benzodiazepine overdoses. So I was a little curious about that, but that's what we're referring to. Yeah, me, me too, especially with a normal pulse and the respirations aren't terrible. Right. But at any rate, sometimes questions are not perfect. But I think this one, well, you know what, too? I, uh, real life is not perfect, especially clinically. You know, the boards do 
try to take a very gray sort of thing, uh, clinical medicine, make it black and white. Um, so if there's some confusion in the physical exam findings here, that's because there may be some confusion in real life. So we will uh, move on. Um, Flumazenil is a benzodiazepine antagonist or a GABA-A receptor antagonist. Um, let's do one more here. Um, this one should be easy, uh, having discussed what we have thus far. So the next one's, which of the following is the most likely cause of this patient's symptoms? That's the lead in. And our patient's a 46 year old man brought to the ED, uh, for altered mental status. He was found on the floor in front of his apartment. He's somnolent, but responsive. His pulse is 64 beats per minute. Respiratory rate is 15 per minute. Blood pressure is normal. On physical exam, alcohol is uh, detectable uh, and slurred speech are noted. Neurologic exam shows diminished deep tendon reflexes bilaterally and an ataxic gait. The blood alcohol concentration is 0.04. It's got a normal EKG. So which of the following is the most likely cause of the patient's symptoms? We have A, cerebral ischemia, B, ethanol intoxication, C, opioid intoxication, or D, benzodiazepine intoxication. So probably on this one, I would think the two most attractive answer choices would be ethanol intoxication, just because the detection of of alcohol um, on the patient, the smell of alcohol, and then answer choice D, uh, benzodiazepines, just because they seems, well, just because we just discussed it. <laughs> and also um, it tends to present, um, I would say physically, I'm like exactly like alcohol intoxication, correct? Yeah, it's sometimes it's, it, it's uh, almost ind indistinguishable. I mean, one thing to know also for the boards is that, um, you know, alcohol is a much dirtier drug um, than we think. It, yes, it has significant GABA-A activity, and that's its primary activity, but it also affects the cannabinoid receptors, the serotonin receptors, the norepi receptors. Um, and so it's a really dirty drug. Um, but I think the point about this question is, you know, is to know like the blood alcohol concentration. So in this case, it's zero, 0 0.04 which is basically the equivalent of having two drinks, you know, um, and the level of intoxication that we think of legally that could actually get you a DUI is 0 0.08 or above. And if somebody was having significant altered mental status, um, then their blood alcohol level would certainly have to be above, almost certainly well above 0 0.08. I have a patient in, in my clinic uh, at the opioid treatment program who came in with, uh, uh, you know, smelling of alcohol. And so we did a breathalyzer on him and his, and we repeated it twice, his uh, BAC by, um, or his uh, breathalyzer uh, showed, I think it was 0 0.43, And shocking. I like he was walking, he was talking, he was clearly intoxicated, but that, I mean, I thought that that would be like a lethal uh, level of, of alcohol. Yeah. I mean, in, in, in emergency, in emergency medicine, you know, if, if the, in a naive patient that very possibly could kill somebody, they would certainly be obtunded and unable to, to, to walk or move or open their eyes in a naive patient. But it's remarkable how the body adapts to chronic, you know, substance use because it, it creates counter regulatory measures you know, and this is kind of ties into a bit of the, of the neurobiology. So if you chronically have a depressant activity, which is what the GA receptor is, it's a chronic depressant to the system. It slows it down. It slows down the system. And, but, you know, whatever's running the show inside us, you, some people call it the ego. I don't know, whatever you want to call it. That's kind of, that's modulating and controlling all of your psychic and physiologic and intellectual processes to give you a competitive advantage, whatever's running the show counteracts things when it finds that there's a problem. So if, if you're taking something and you're sedated, 
then whatever whatever inside is running the show will say, hey, wait, you need to be able to escape from this tiger and you need to have more you know, capacity to act and to move. And so it's going to increase the counter-regulatory hormones, the fight or flight response, the norepinephrine um, over time. And so then at a baseline, have elevated norepinephrine and glutaminergic tone, then this is the, the genesis of the withdrawal syndromes, right? Because if you normally balance your heavy alcohol use with a counter-regulatory, uh, you know, um, neurotransmitters, you take away the alcohol, then you're just left with this overactive fight or flight response. And that could be dangerous. Now, I think um, uh, hopefully not everyone who's listening, but many who have listened have probably woken up the next day after having too much alcohol to drink at some point and felt uh, anxious, keyed up, certainly dehydrated, have a headache is, I mean, that in large part then could be thought of as a response of, hey, I'm putting into my body something depressant, uh, as it were, and then you release the norepinephrine, these um, uh, noradrenergic uh, compounds. Those are kind of still being spit out uh, into the body as the alcohol is metabolized and goes away. Is that... Um, yes. Everything is so complex, but uh, I'm sure... Uh, but nevertheless, I'd, that's a good I'd imagine that's a good way to kind of remember this um, mechanistically. Good way to summarize it. All right. So this one was benzo intoxication because blood, alcohol, um, the legal limits or the intoxicated limits. Um, well, I guess we could comment on this. So you said that 0.04 is essentially two servings of alcohol. And um, the, the, uh, legal limit tends to be 0.08. I don't know if that's the same in every state. Um, but pro I want, I think on military bases, if I recall, it's a little bit lower, but so goes that, but something to remember is that the definition of binge drinking, um, probably ties into this a little bit too, correct? Um, can you speak to that? Two drinks is not binge drinking, even though that might make my blood alcohol concentration 0.04. I'm not really going to be in a binge territory as a man um, until I'm at a theoretical legal limit or four drinks or more, correct? Exactly. And so that's the, that's, is the definition of binge drinking. And this is a very ripe question for the boards. So anybody who drinks to the point where they, uh, their blood alcohol level is greater than 0 0.08 or intoxication, that qualifies as binge drinking. So that's a great point. All right. So let's get into more um, or no, meat, the meat of um, the neurobiology of addiction and recovery. So a lot of people don't realize how prevalent I think addiction is. And in many respects, that's why we're doing this series. Uh, but the prevalence is so high, I assume, because it's super easy to mess up your, you know, brain's reward system um, and become addicted to a substance. How does that happen? Like, why, why, if I take a Percocet after getting a hernia repair, do I, you know, get nausea and think it's terrible and not want to, not want to use it. And then another patient likes it, gets dependent. And why does one person get addicted and not another person? Well, I think that what you brought up was such a great description. Um, you know, you take a Percocet and it makes you feel nauseated. You're like, why would I take this? And another person takes it and it activates them and it gives them euphoria and, you know, they, like, interestingly, this hasn't really been documented in the literature, but when I am treating people who are addicted to opiates, um, it's a, a very strong predisposing factor is if they take an opiate and it, it activates them, um, they're much more likely to get addicted. So this is just a window into genetics, which is what we're going to talk about. You know, I think that, that um, you know, addiction is known to be between, you know, the vulnerability to addiction is between 40 and 60% genetics. Um, and, 
you know, this isn't like on one gene, it's spread across many um, chromosomes and many different genes. So we haven't isolated it completely. Um, but like, there's plenty of people who can use substances on a regular basis, and they don't develop the neural pathways in the brain that lead to the compulsiveness of addiction. Because that's kind of the hallmark of addiction is the compulsiveness of use and not just the use. There's many people out there who use substances and abuse substances and even develop consequences in their life that would therefore meet the criteria for a use disorder. But the question is, do they really have an addiction? I would argue some don't, right? Um, and what is it that causes an addiction, these gen genetic factors? Well, I mean, there's some pretty cool literature that's coming out. Um, there's a guy named Eric Nestler from uh, Mount Sinai and uh, Terry Robinson and Kent Barrett from the University of Michigan, um, which is where I used to be faculty. And, um, and they're talking about this idea of incentive salience. So most people, um, you know, most people's understanding of addiction um, has to do more with kind of pleasure and the pleasure molecule. And, you know, there were two uh, neuroscientists in the 80s, Roy Wise and George Koob, who came up with a theory that dopamine is the central molecule of addiction. And when dopamine is released into the reward circuit, it ends up causing pleasure. And so since then, this is where the narratives have been kind of described about addiction, that it's all about, you know, dopamine causing pleasure. But, you know, um, Terry Robinson and Kent Barrage, they challenged that. And their research is actually pretty old, too. It's from the 90s. Um, but they feel that dopamine is more involved with something called incentive salience. And incentive salience is a term that they coined. And, and um, so the way that I remember this is I, I kind of reverse the words. So salience is a term for something that stands out. Much of what our brain does is actually filter out things that we that are not important to us. Like a high percentage of what our brain does is, is actually you know, determining what has salience. And so salience is if something has importance and it stands out to you. And the incentive part of the incentive salience has to do with motivation. So if something causes someone to act. So, for example, if, if if you remember the little squirrel from Ice Age, have you ever seen that movie? Yeah, excellent film. Yeah, it is. It's an excellent film. And if you think back, there's the acorn. And uh, that acorn is the exact example of what has incentive salience to the squirrel. That stands out more than anything in the squirrel's existence. And it motivates that squirrel to do crazy things and to go into crazy, dangerous environments. Right. So that's that, um, you know, acorn has incentive salience. Another kind of archetype of incentive salience is uh, Anthony Bourdain, you know, um, rest in peace, right? Exotic foods had incentive salience to him. You know, they uh, stood out to him more than anything and it motivated him to travel around the world to find exotic foods. And so, so this is kind of like the newer theory of, of addiction is that dopamine causes incentive salience. And the last piece of that that I just want to riff on is that, you know, um, with addiction, most people would agree that drug liking diminishes over time, you know, like the thousandth time they've used heroin, most people will say, I don't get any euphoria from it. It just makes me feel normal, right? And so that's not doesn't really fit with the whole pleasure molecule idea, right? But um, but their motivation to find it again goes up and up and up, right? And so that's called sensitization versus tolerance, um, as you guys know, which is another good topic for um, for the boards. It may be a little simplistic, but we'll just review it. Tolerance is very simple. You use a drug multiple times, it has decreased activity, you become tolerant to it. Sensitization is the opposite. The more times you're exposed to a drug, there's more effect. And the incentive salience aspect actually increases over time. So the more time that you're exposed to a drug, the more the dopamine gets released. And there's actually animal models that show this. It's really fascinating. And this fits with kind of the pattern of addiction. So to return to the uh, original um, Kuvin and Wise theory that dopamine's the pleasure molecule released into our reward pathway, we feel good, so we keep doing it versus the incentive salience model. The first kind of puts the cause of addiction, if I understand this correctly, 
in the drug, the substance itself, and the other one takes into this incentive salience model takes into account the dyad of drug and human being who takes the drug. Um, is that correct? Am I understanding this correctly? Yeah, I think that's an interesting way to look at it. Um, you know, another way to explain it is that dopamine gets released in response to pleasure in order to remind the human being to create these circumstances again in the future, to motivate you to remember how to create these circumstances again in the future. So um, plenty of things in, in normal life, you know, have incentive salience, you know, then, and it's a natural aspect of being a human that gives us a competitive advantage to survive and procreate. So as with many things in psychiatry, you know, addiction is just an exaggerated form of a normal process. Well, on that note, then addiction, addiction, the term. So if I'm correct, that is not um, how the DSM-5 uh, conceives of this problem, right? Uh, it's more so in terms of substance use disorder and then the unique um, outlier amongst behaviors being a gambling disorder. Is that correct? Correct. So can you be addicted to behavioral type uh, activities um, like uh, pornography or or gambling, which, yes, I think you guys, you psychiatrists say that gambling's a big yes. What, what, what about those things? Like, is addiction just substances? I know that's a leading question, but. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, uh, absolutely. Uh, I, you know, earlier on in my psychiatric career, I wasn't convinced that like internet gaming disorder was real or behavioral addictions were real. But the more I do this, they are absolutely real. What defines an addiction if it's, is if it's chronic and progressive, and it gets to the point where it's causing disruptions in their life. And for example, with internet gaming disorder, there are people out there who are inserting Foley catheters so that they don't have to go to the bathroom to urinate so that they can play for 16 hours straight. They've lost their jobs. They've lost their girlfriend or boyfriend. I mean, that's evidence of consequences and progression to the point of addiction. So absolutely. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Um, I think that, that that would be something that would pull me in. Uh, yesterday, I hadn't played video games in forever. And I spent like literally the, the whole afternoon playing with my son, um, just an unscripted day. And that was fun. That was great. But man, the time went by like, like that. Uh, it was like four hours. Boom. How long was that? It felt like, you know, 20 minutes. So um, I definitely have to be careful with the old uh, video games. But um, yeah, that's it's just interesting to me how little I think treatment options exist. If you just Google these things for some of the behavioral addictions, it, it seems like that's another area that that is in its infancy, uh, not even its adolescence, perhaps. I, I agree. And I think that, you know, this is something where, you know, there's, there's, there's a group of us on the inside of, you know, academia who are starting to pay attention to other aspects of treatment. Um, and, uh, you know, in my opinion, you know, if someone has a true addiction, the only way to treat the addiction is to, through behavioral changes, to create new neural pathways in the brain. And, and so I'll discuss that a little bit further, um, but don't get me wrong. Like medicines are critical in the management of people who have addictions. It's their life-saving and I use them every day in my practice. But I think it's, we have to be careful because in my opinion, they don't actually treat the addiction itself and there needs to be another component to it. Medicines are necessary, but in my opinion, not sufficient. Um, because now that we're getting into like what actually is addiction. So addiction is neuroplasticity. Basically what dopamine does is it creates neural pathways in the brain that bypass the frontal cortex, that bypass our capacity to modulate our impulses. So we could go directly from impulse to, to action. And this is where Eric Nessler's work comes in. Dopamine increases the, the dendritic connections in certain pathways. So it reinforces some, and uh, other pathways atrophy. There's this idea of competitive neuroplasticity that's been around for a while. It's kind of the use it or lose it. So if you're in these, you know, in these neural pathways where you bypass your frontal cortex, they gain momentum, and it's kind of the anatomy of a craving. 
Interesting. Craving, what's that? That's a, that's a simple question, but it's a great question. You know, what really is it? We don't know. I mean, um, we have theories and, and, you know, my theory is, is that, you know, these neural pathways develop in the brain that are kind of associations that have been created by dopamine in the past. So for example, if somebody was, you know, wearing a blue shirt and there was their favorite blue shirt and they shot heroin for the first time, that's going to be neurobiologically associated with heroin. So the next time they lose, use their blue shirt, that kind of jumps them onto that addictive pathway, which in the past has been associated with drug use. So there's going to be an impulse to use. So that's kind of like, in my opinion, the description of a craving. Interesting. Yeah. The, uh, this, this, yeah, this is so fascinating. I, I, I think addiction is, is definitely one of those fields that, um, there's a lot of opportunity obstetrics is, is, is what I'm trained in. So I don't know how to put this because I don't want to sound critical of the specialty, but, but it seems like, you know, there's not going to be a lot of innovation in, well, it's true. There's not going to be a lot of innovation in how to deliver a baby, right? Um, that's a, a natural process and we've been able to reduce mortality and morbidity significantly, but like the process is the same and the limits of inquiry are it's so um, specific now because there's been time, there's been money, there's been effort put into, you know, investigating uh, the labor curve or, um, you know, the various drugs for the uh, induction of labor. Addiction, it seems, as a, a field as a whole, like we haven't really worked out the neurobiology, uh, the the best treatments. Uh, and because as I've seen the terminology change just in my uh, career um, in medicine, I graduated from med school in 2010. Like it still seems people are, are uh, clawing at the appropriate language to use to describe the phenomenon. Uh, and that's why I would tell people like, totally consider this as a career because there's going to be a lot of uh, uh, there's a lot of interest there's a lot of areas that will develop um, I mean this is what I tell people about psychiatry too um, you know it's it's really coming into its own as far as a, a scientific field um, I, I don't know where, where I'm going with that but um, well yeah I agree yeah I mean it's it's a fascinating field to be in. Um, and there's things are changing all the time. Like here at OHSU, we developed a new protocol for kind of microinductions onto buprenorphine that you know was published, and 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 I believe it's kind of like changing the you know the course of practice, uh, which is really exciting. And so this is you know it's it's great to be in a field where we're making changes that are going to be generalized. So it's, it's a great field to go into. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned micro induction protocol. So why is that important? What do you mean micro induction? Why can't you just, if somebody has an opiate use disorder, just give them some uh, buprenorphine uh, and call it a day? <laughs> well, it's because oftentimes the process of getting people onto the buprenorphine can be challenging. Some people can't tolerate the withdrawals. If people are on methadone, for example, um, the transition to buprenorphine is really hard. They have to decrease the dose and then they have to be abstinent for a couple of days at least um, to not precipitate withdrawal um, because precipitated withdrawal is a great question for the boards. I suspect most people probably know what it is, but natural withdrawal from any substance, for example, from opiates happens slowly over time. The full agonist molecules just slowly dissociate from the receptors over time, and then you slowly go into a withdrawal syndrome, and it progresses slowly as time goes on. Precipitated withdrawal is when you have another molecule that jumps in there. It's a bully. It rapidly shifts all of the molecules that are already on, like the full agonist opiates that are on the receptors, off the receptors because it has a higher affinity, and you have this rapid physiologic shock, and that's what precipitated withdrawal is. Classic opiate withdrawal is not dangerous, period. Precipitated withdrawal 
is dangerous. There are case reports of deaths, lots of bad things happening. Um, so this is another important thing to know about for clinical practice and also for boards. Precipitated withdrawal can be dangerous. But anyway, a microinduction just kind of slowly introduces small amounts of buprenorphine, which has a higher affinity and is a bully molecule. So it just kind of slowly dissociates the full agonist from the receptor. So people can actually stay on their full agonist opiates all the while that the buprenorphine is being titrated up. It's brilliant. Interesting. Just curious, what, what do you guys do? Um, so like, for example, if somebody's on 90 milligrams of oxycodone, um, they continue on their oxycodone um, while they're starting with the microinduction. They're given like 0.5 milligrams of buprenorphine on day one, they a, a milligram on day two, two milligrams on day three, and kind of like that up until they get to day five or six, um, while they're still taking the full agonist opioid. And then all of a sudden you hit about eight milligrams. Once you hit eight milligrams, then you could just completely stop the full agonist opioids. Hmm, interesting. Recovery. So the term used for people battling addiction, see, this is also why I like the field, um, because it you are, as a physician, contributing to recovery. There's medical treatment um, that we provide, but that is not the whole story in helping these patients. And that's why they talk about being in recovery. So let's move to the philosophical, I guess. So it seems to me that people can get the cravings taken care of for their opiate use disorder, for instance, with methadone or uh, buprenorphine. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're not going to, you know, completely stop using heroin, fentanyl. They occasionally do, or there's some stress trigger. And fentanyl, benzapines, or other drugs, or, you know. Correct. Actually, that's <laughs> I didn't want to get things too complex, but that is the thing that that um, I, I think is is tough to look at addiction as uh, more than just a, a biologic disease, but also a, a psycho-spiritual problem. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that... A relational problem as well. Absolutely. I mean, you touched on so many important things, and I'll just start by, you know, like recovery. There's a great term um, called recovery capital, which, um, you know, it would be great for people who are curious to look it up. And it's basically a description of, of positive aspects of people's lives that can be kind of quantified um, as, you know, more, the more time they spend in recovery and abstinence. And it talks about how, how are your relationships going? Do you have a job? Um, you know, just all of the positive aspects of your life. And so I think we need to start thinking of recovery as something more than just not using drugs. And this also does tie directly into the neurobiology of it, because Again, what's the cause of the addiction? Well, it's these neuroplastic changes in the brain that bypass the frontal cortex. So even if you stop using drugs, you could be using those neural pathways in the brain. So you have to build a separate set of, of neural pathways. And how do you do that? You do that through doing enjoyable things in recovery. So if people start a new hobby and start to feel contented and joy over and over again, they're causing normal endogenous dopamine release in the system that's building these recovery pathways. And so that's kind of the exciting part about this neurobiology of recovery is how do you do it? You find ways that are different from the old pathways, right? Because if things in the past got so neurobiologically associated with a drug, like for example, if every single time somebody went fishing, they were drunk on alcohol, then fishing probably isn't a great one to use as a new hobby in recovery because it's going to be so neurobiologically associated that when you go fishing, it's going to bring you into those pathways. So maybe pick up a new hobby and feel contented over and over and over again um, and build these recovery pathways in the brain. How do you do that for for people um, or get them to see that? Because there's often like just a complete absence of hope. And if you have no hope, you can't really have any motivation. So, you know, they get, I mean, they're, if you're coming to treatment for addiction, often you've got, a, you know, a pretty good measure of anhedonia there too. 
Well, I that's why I'm a big proponent of recommending people they, they go to 12-step groups and like AA and NA is because they can have exposure to people who have come out the other end of this and are just living a life that is reflecting joy. And so like they like, you know, I always am confident when I'm explaining to patients about this, that yes, you, your life will be better if you could just continue to do this. And they will listen to me to some degree, but they will listen much more to somebody who's been in the process and who has come out the other end. And so that's why I'm a big proponent of, of, of those uh, self-help groups. Yeah, um, especially... And it also, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I have to say one more thing before I forget, because you mentioned how isolation, there's, isolation is part of addiction. It's part of what happens. The people who are genetically predisposed to addiction are genetically predisposed to isolation. And that's one of the most destructive aspects that goes against recovery. So people, and that's another reason why some of these health self-help groups are great, is that it's a way that people can kind of get outside of themselves and out, out of outside of isolation and into some sort of group dynamic. Because somehow there's something also as a psychiatrist, there's magic that happens in groups when people are able to be vulnerable in a group setting. Um, there's some really cool psychodynamic stuff that's happening. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, maybe I'll get around to writing some sort of philosophy of addiction at some point, uh, probably when I retire. Um, uh, what about this phenomenon of replacing one addiction with another? I've heard patients or, or other people say, treat one addiction, people just replace one addiction with another. Does that happen? Is there, is that a phenomenon that is supported by research or just kind of a gestalt that, that gets bandied about? Well, I, I call it the whack-a-mole phenomenon. And if you know that game, the whack-a-mole where you hit one mole and another one just pops up, that's kind of the way it works. And you're right. It is real. It's been documented in research that people will shift from one addiction to another. From my experience, oftentimes people will have a primary addiction, something that really gets them. That's really their favorite thing. Um, and that's kind of their drug of choice. But those people absolutely will switch from one addiction to another. And this is one of the sad progressions that I've found is that oftentimes it's almost like the final common pathway is methamphetamine these days. And uh, that's just a trend I've noticed. And methamphetamine is definitely the most destructive of the drugs. Um, it, it's like, uh, it's so powerful. It causes, like, for example, cocaine causes 300% of your natural dopamine release. Methamphetamine causes 1200% of the natural. So like, you know, it will progress to addiction so much faster with methamphetamine. It's, it's, a, it's a term called telescoping, which might come up on the boards. It's how quickly you go from first drug use to like severe addiction. And methamphetamine's uh, velocity is a lot quicker because of how hard it hits the, the system. Exactly. It has like quadruple the amount of dopamine release than the other substances. Um, what about then, I don't want to keep you too much longer because I know your, your time's valuable and I really, well, we all appreciate it, but when a patient comes, let's say to, um, for treatment for an opiate problem, like 99% of them also are dependent on, on nicotine in some form, should patients quit everything as it were, um, focus on one thing. Is there any um, advice on counseling patients to that end? There's mixed data on this. Some people support that would like, for example, with smoking, um, that just continue your smoking and get rid of your primary addiction first. But there's also other data that shows pretty distinctly that if they quit everything at once, then their likelihood of relapse is much lower. I tend to fit into that category. So if they're ready to quit, let's help them with everything because smoking is a very addictive substance and it, it kind of brings you into those addictive pathways. So, um, you know, anything that, anything that brings you into those addictive pathways has potential to bring you back to your drug of choice. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. All right. Well, I, I have so many more things I could ask you and I'd, I'd love to continue this conversation, but um, before we end here, is there anything else uh, really important that you'd want to communicate to students um, as they think about addiction, as they progress through training and hopefully acquire a greater appreciation of addiction as a disease so they can help patients? 
Well, I would just say that addiction is a chronic, progressive, and fatal disease. Um, and we have to think of it that way. So, for example, if people have had 10 episodes of care, that doesn't mean that they don't deserve an 11th or a 12th. There was a study that showed that actually it's on average, it takes people 11 attempts in order to get recovery. So have patience for these people. The other thing that I would say is that they're full-fledged human beings. Oftentimes, people think of people of addictions as some sort of lesser form, um, you know, because they, quite honestly, they oftentimes are really not nice people and steal and lie. And so it's a natural inclination to think that they're not great people. But it's the addiction that is causing a lot of these behaviors. And oftentimes, once the addiction is treated, people with addictions turn out to be some of the most amazing people you'll ever come across. So, um, and that's kind of why I can do what I do. And, and to witness these transitions is really, you know, um, a privilege and a, pro and a pleasure. And, um, you know, I think that, uh, I also think that people who are predisposed to addiction are people who are in a way like super sensitive souls, you know, that they may actually feel deeper and harder than others. And the addiction is kind of like a, 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 a capacity to tolerate all of these, you know, um, emotions. And so, you know, once they're able to learn ways to kind of modulate their emotions, um, they can be really super remarkable people. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you. I 100% agree with that. And I, again, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome.